Good morning. As I said, I'm Mandy, if I don't know you. Um, <clears throat> Tim is out of town this week. He'll be back next week. Um, so I'm going to kind of tackle some of that exodus that Natasha read so beautifully. I'm sorry, you were chose, chosen because you're good. <laughs> and that was a long one. Um, when I think about the parting of the Red Sea, that's what we're going to talk about today, it's hard not really to think or conjure up the image of, you know, the 1956, the big Cecil B. DeMille production, The Ten Commandments. They used to play it every year on cable. I don't know if they still do, but um, they had, you know, cast this blue-eyed uh, Charlton Heston with the beautiful uh, hair. Uh, that's, the, that's the image I, I, I conjure up, his arms outstretched over the sea, but... Um, let's just watch, let's watch the clip. The Lord of hosts will do battle for us. <laughs> Behold his mighty hand. the waters before them, and he bars our way with fire. Let us go from this place. Men cannot fight against a god. Better to die in battle with a god than live in shame. Praise God and down into it! Now, old movies, right? That's the visual I get when I read the story of Exodus, and I kind of wish it weren't so, although now I've just imposed that all on you too, but because it's a really flat portrayal, as is usual in Hollywood. All of the complexities and the drama that was unfolding in the background are lost, you know, in the Hollywood version. The Exodus story is really this indispensable story in, in the Old Testament. For Jews, for Christians, it's in the New Testament. It's many times in the Old Testament. I think scholars say that there's about two dozen references to the, the crossing in the Old Testament. And in the New Testament, just almost immeasurable allusions to the crossing. Some of the biggies are um, in Matthew. The writer says, out of Egypt I have called my son. He's quoting Hosea there. In Hebrews 11, by faith the Israelites passed through the sea, the Red Sea being this kind of paradigm for faith. 
Another one is 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Paul makes what is kind of an enigmatic statement that our ancestors were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea and were baptized into Moses. So it's hard to overstate, that's just a few, it's hard to overstate the importance really of this story. In Exodus, uh, especially early on, the, one of the key characters, really the dominant character, is Pharaoh. He casts a really long shadow. He is, uh, you know, Yahweh actually doesn't even really make an appearance until chapter 3. So he's kind of a big deal early on in the story. But Pharaoh is a really anxious leader. He has a terrible case of scarcity. He thinks that even though he's king and he's pretty much the richest guy around, it's just never enough. So he sets out to accumulate, just accumulate everything, money, grain, people to work, until he has a monopoly, really, on everything in Egypt. And as we know, leaders who collect and hoard their power and wealth to the exclusion of so many others, it almost always ends in violence. So he treats this cheap labor force, the Israelites, terribly, brutally. He thinks it's legitimate to just oppress them. He thinks that's okay as long as it is enhancing his monopoly. He says to the Hebrew slaves what powerful, especially uh, tyrants, say often to poor people, which is, you're lazy and you don't work hard enough. Make more bricks in this case. But luckily, the Exodus story is not written by Pharaoh. It's actually written by that cheap labor force, by those slaves, the very people that Pharaoh was keeping in bondage. Okay, so let's, we need to get into the details of it, don't we? Okay, and I, I, won't, I won't rehash actually all the details from the previous weeks. In fact, we're like nine weeks into this series, so I won't go over everything, of course, but this week we come to this preeminent section of Exodus where the people have actually been freed from their slavery. They've been let go. And right at the end of chapter 13, it reads, when Pharaoh let the people go, God did not lead them by way of the land of the Philistines, Although that was closer, God thought if the people face war, they may change their minds and return to Egypt. It's a little, little bit odd because uh, surely he could have saved them from a battle with the Philistines after they'd gone out, it says a little bit earlier, armed for battle. But the Lord went in front of them in a pillar of cloud by day and led them along the way and in the pillar of fire by night to give them light. So they might travel by day and by night, neither the pillar of cloud or the fire left its place in front of the people. And then in chapter 14, then the Lord said to Moses, tell the Israelites to turn back and camp in front of Pihahiroth between Migdal and the sea, in front of Balzaphon. You shall camp opposite it by the sea. Pharaoh will say of the Israelites, they're wandering aimlessly in the land. The wilderness has closed in on them. I will harden Pharaoh's heart and he will pursue them so that I will gain glory for myself over Pharaoh and all his army. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. And they did so. They did exactly that. So God was guiding them in this weird way that made it look, at least to Pharaoh, like they were, like they were lost and confused. Almost like God wants to pick a fight with Pharaoh by making him look like they don't know where they're going. It seems like maybe even after the plagues, you know, that had just happened, Pharaoh hadn't really learned anything. Because in verse 5 it says, he said, like it all of a sudden dawns on him, why have we let them go? What have we done? Indeed, though, Pharaoh's heart was hardened, and suddenly there's like this new urgency. And the Israelites realized that Pharaoh and his armies were not actually going to let them go, and certainly not without a fight. 
And in fact, they were hot on their trail with the, the best military technology money could buy, chariots and horses and men armed for battle. I came across this really interesting book by a guy named Michael Walzer. It's called Exodus and Revolution. And he says in his book, tyranny is symbolized by Pharaoh's horses and chariots, which are the core of his army and the source of his power. A tyrant is a ruler who acts without concern for checks and balances, one who uses power oppressively and absolutely. Pharaoh is such a tyrant. It's hard, I think, for us to imagine horses being used as weapons of war, but almost all references uh, to horses in the Bible are associated with war. So when Israel saw Pharaoh's army on horseback, they were horrified. Israel, you know, just with their kids and their flocks, just on foot. Now, because the route God had instructed them to take, the Israelites kind of find themselves totally trapped between the sea and the Egyptian army. And naturally, uh, because they were human beings, in, that, in the face of that kind of opposition, their collective anxiety spiked. And in response to that spike, the Israelites seemed to shift from people who, were, who had been shaped by hope and possibility to being shaped by fear and doubt. And they begin to speak this shift out loud. They say in verse 11, Moses, they cried out, what have you done to us, bringing us out here to, out of Egypt? Were there not enough graves in Egypt that you have taken us out here to die? Is this not the very thing we told you in Egypt? Let us alone and let us serve the Egyptians, for it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. This is such a dramatic change uh, for the Israelites. Back in verse 8, it says, they were going out boldly. They were hungry for their liberation. They were hurriedly eating their Passover meal, loins girded, their sandals on the feet, staff in hand in the case of Moses. They were completely geared up for their freedom and for this new chapter. After Moses had provided that last Passover liturgy and told them to get ready for a change, I think the Israelites had allowed themselves to actually dream of what might be ahead of them. And maybe at least mentally and emotionally, they had just started taking these steps toward a transition from being a slave to the beginnings of what ultimately would be the, you know, the people who would be a blessing to all the other nations. But as we read today, they were actively on the move from slavery into freedom. And right when they had gathered up all their things, everything that they could carry to make this move into God's plan, at that moment, it's as if they looked around at unfamiliar territory and landscape and into this unfamiliar future and the fear, I think, just locked them down. And who can blame them? Pharaoh and his armies were right on their heels. Of course, they became paralyzed with fear. And they looked back and they saw their enemies. I would be scared too. It didn't help, of course, that you know, they were standing on the bank of this sea. They felt trapped. When they looked backwards, all they could see was Pharaoh's armies barreling toward them with their chariots and their horses. And when they looked forward, they saw the churning of a water in a sea that was much too deep to swim and the banks that were much too far away. And probably if they looked down, they saw their own kids, you know, clinging to their legs, scared to death. And of course, they became people that were fear-shaped rather than hope-shaped. And unfortunately, they became so gripped with fear that in response to this unfamiliar future, they momentarily forgot why they had even left Egypt in the first place. And as that fear-shaped mindset started to dominate their memories of what had been, they began to wonder, 
if, you know, maybe slavery wasn't so bad. It's hard to imagine. But maybe they could endure the pain and the violence. Maybe they could endure all the brick making. At least they'd be alive. At least they would have food to eat. At least they'd have a place to sleep. And as they stood there trapped in what was liminal space, all they could imagine, really, was a possible death in an unfamiliar land. Sandwiched between Pharaoh's armies and this sea, I suppose it is not hard to understand at all. Our spiritual ancestors, the Israelites, you know, became just scared to death, and they made that shift. So I've seen this shift, actually, firsthand. I'm sure all of us have. Uh, I used to, some years ago, work in an office with a woman. Um, I'll call her Ashley. She was in a, a really abusive relationship. And she was trying in earnest, she really was, to get out of it. Um, I learned later from a staff person at a battered women's shelter that most women, uh, you know, it takes like seven times of trying to leave the abuse before they can really do it permanently. But it, so it takes on average seven times to leave that relationship. But before, before Ashley could leave, she just kept looking behind her and seeing this army of abuse and fear. And she knew it was not the way it was supposed to be. She recognized that, but she would look forward and all she could see was the unknown, unknown future. It filled her with worries about how she would make it financially. Would he come after her? Would she be able to take her kids? How would she tell her family? Unlike the Israelites, I think the waves of just chaos and the unfamiliar seemed so much worse than what she was trying to escape. And Ashley became fear-shaped entirely rather than shaped by hope and the possibility of maybe a better life. She just kept looking back and letting that dictate what was to come before her. I think in the case of Israel, it's so unbelievable to read this section of Exodus now and think that no more than just a few days out of Egypt and already the Israelites are distorting the past as if it would have been better to be back in Egypt and be slaves. It is very easy to let our past chase us down though, isn't it? And like the Israelites, we can find ourselves in this in-between space. Not where we want to go, not all the way there yet. And I don't think the real problem is the Red Sea, but the past in the form of the Egyptian army coming up behind them. And kind of like a moth to a flame, the Israelites are tempted to just go back. When we usually talk about somebody with a past, you know, or people's having a past, it's usually kind of a sketchy past we're referring to. But we all have a past, good, bad, in between. And even a bad past can be comforting. And this is what makes us want to regress or just give up. The familiarity of even a bad past can be tempting. We say, well, you know, at least we know what to expect back there. We have some coping mechanisms and some skills now. We can probably take it. And this is what keeps us in bondage. I think this delusion that we're tough, you know, and we can do it instead of we're just afraid, afraid to go forward. Maybe it's a good past that is drawing us back, making us turn around and give up, because the truth of the matter is, a good past can be really confining. It can lull us into thinking that we've reached our limit. There's nowhere to go, really, and we just become complacent, and we settle for the past. I think that's the challenge of the in-between place, the discomfort of transition, we have to decide if we're gonna tip over into something new, maybe something unexpected or unseen, or do we just settle for what we knew and experienced before, whether or not it was good or bad. 
So we're sort of camped out, you know, on the shores of our own Red Sea. We've already come a long way, but we're not quite there. And our pasts are coming for us. Past relationships, past habits, past modes of being, modes of action, ways to deal, successes even, achievements. Just inviting us and chasing us. And we have to decide, do we want to go back? A good past will tempt us to settle out of loyalty. We don't want our moving forward to reflect poorly, maybe, on what had happened before or what we had been given. And this really is good enough anyway, right? Anything is more is just kind of hard. Like, why do we have to keep going and growing? Here is pretty good. It's easy to want to surrender to, surrender to what was rather than fight for what will be. I think maybe the Israelites looked at themselves, it's possible at least, and just said, you know what, we're slaves. This is what we are. We actually kind of need Egypt. In fact, I don't know that we know what we are without them. And you know Pharaoh, he certainly had some problems with his past too, mainly that he didn't remember it. I think Cole made this point beautifully last week when he said, he showed that graphic of the pyramid and said that those at the top of the pyramid are so utterly invested in a system of oppression that they have total amnesia. They can't remember, they have to protect that system. I mean, Pharaoh had a dead son and he still was like, I'm, I'm going after these people. After all that had happened, the things these people had witnessed, the rivers turning to blood, the frogs, the gnats, the gnats I think would have been it for me. I would have just said, let them get them out of here. <laughs> I mean, God's power though was made clearer and clearer as those plagues progressed. And they still say, why didn't you just leave us in Egypt? So Moses speaks to the people, and this is his response in verse 13. It says, Moses said to the people, do not be afraid. Stand firm and see the deliverance that the Lord will accomplish for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you. You have only to keep still. So there is some disagreement uh, about, among commentators and scholars about the tone of Moses' response. So this first part of Moses' response that says, do not be afraid, it's, some say it's spoken sort of as a lament or at least to those who are lamenting. And in his lament or assurance to the people, he's proposing this completely different world order, this complete alternative world in which God's action and governance overpower any other claim to governance. And then you have others like uh, Pete Enns, who is a really well-respected commentator of Exodus. He writes this about Moses' response. This is not a word of comfort. Moses is not saying, there, there, don't worry. God will take care of you. You will see, be calm. Rather, he says, this is a terse, impatient command on Moses' part. In Hebrew, the last part of the verse is just these two words which are best translated as, you be quiet, or better, shut up. This is no word of comfort, but an angry denouncement of Israel's paper-thin faith. I mean, I don't know exactly where I stand on that. I'm not an Exodus scholar, but I do know that often that is how God talks to me. <laughs> Stop talking, even shut up. As the poor Israelites were just being, t being chased down by the most technologically equipped fighting force, the Israelites were becoming shaped by fear. Surely in a fight or flight mode, that's what it would do to us. They may have been thinking, maybe we can resist, there may, is a, may be a chance, maybe we can run, you know, if everyone can swim, or just go back, just go back to our abusers. But keep still and be quiet, I don't think that was on their minds. 
their mandate from God was not fight or flee and not, certainly not go back and surrender, but to stop talking and witness, observe God's power and might, and God would do all the fighting. And indeed, he does actually do the most incredible thing, one of the most incredible miracles in the Bible. He instructs Moses to raise his staff and stretch it out over the sea, and the water is driven back, it says, by a strong east wind, and the escapees cross over on dry land. The Hebrew word for wind here, I think it's just really important and symbolic, is in verse 21 is ruach. Tim has talked about ruach before. It's the same ruach found in Genesis, this primordial sea that God has to tame for life to appear. In Genesis, it's actually on the third day of creation that God separated the waters below to reveal the dry ground, setting the stage for the newly ordered cosmos. And this crossing is actually a mini replay of the creation story. In Genesis, the earth was formed out of or came out from under water. And then in kind of this like hat tip to the flood story, the waters came crashing down again, killing all the Egyptians. The crossing is Israel's literal salvation. Coming into Christ is like a creation happening again on a smaller scale. This carries over, of course, it'll be a familiar one in the New Testament. Second Corinthians says, so if anyone is in Christ, there is a new creation. Everything old has passed away. See, everything has become new. In both stories, the water plays this central key role and has to be subdued to bring life and then released to bring death. I mean, the theological point is obvious, isn't it? That God is parting the sea, echoes this creation story, and in doing so, God is creating a new identity for the Israelites, one that was distinct and very different from their identity as slaves. Stop looking back and watch what God is about to do. I think this underscores that the fact that Yahweh that all the agency in this story belongs to Yahweh. It's, the victory is completely God's. And the people of Israel, as well as the Egyptians, were going to see this, see that the Lord's glory and power far surpassed any of Pharaoh's claims, either to military power or that he was a deity. The contest between God and Pharaoh had been building all through Exodus, Exodus 1 through 13, to this very showdown at the sea, if you will. And God had won. I think uh, later on in the chapter, verse 30 and 31, bring these observations really full circle about the seeing and fearing that the Israelites were doing. In verse 10, it says, the Israelites saw the Egyptians advancing. And then in verse 30, Israel saw again, but the Egyptians dead on the seashore. In verse 10, the Israelites feared greatly for their lives in the face of the advancing Egyptians. And then in verse 30 to 31, Israel saw the great work that the Lord did against the Egyptians, and they feared the Lord. Yahweh's divine act accomplished all that was necessary for Israel. Moses kind of comes in and says, okay, everyone calm down. They got quiet, they got still, and they were able to just allow themselves to re return to people who were shaped by hope. So I, I read this Jewish midrash, or I read about it actually, on this text, this Exodus text. And as you all know, a midrash is kind of a conversation or a literature that flows out of study of the Torah. And the ancient rabbis believed that every word in the Torah was important. None of them were superfluous. 
And if a word was in there, it had a purpose. So this particular midrash uh, centered on this word into, into the sea on dry ground. And ancient Rabbi Judah explained that when they reached the edge of the sea, it did not automatically part. The tribes were arguing amongst themselves about who was gonna go first, and some versions say that they were sort of arguing over, you know, we want the honor to go first, which I, I kind of doubt. <laughs> it was more likely, you guys go ahead, head on into the water. So they argued anyway, and uh, this man named Nishan bin Aminadad became fed up with all the bickering and all the arguing, and turned toward the sea and just begins like walking in. He walks up to his ankles, nothing. The water gets up to his waist, nothing happened. Finally, the Red Sea reaches his neck, nothing. And it gets up to his nostrils, as the story goes, and the sea just opened up. The waters became dry ground, just as God had promised, and Nashon led all the others to their freedom and to the beginning of a new life that God had for them. I know how in a blink of an eye, we can all lose our courage and our faith when the ground is shaking with the stampede of a Pharaoh's army and we don't see a way through what stands maybe just right in front of us. I think we're all called to make this decision. Will Pharaoh get us back? Or will we allow God to live up to God's job description? Nashon decided he would doubt his own doubts and go forward that God would indeed fulfill the covenant that God had started way back with Abraham and Sarah. And I think Nashon's decision gave the rest of the Israelites courage that they just went through the sea and ended up drawing on, walking on dry ground. They had no idea what was gonna unfold once they got to the other side, but that one voice of courage, I think, within their own community just emboldened them all to just step off the beach so I can't help but wonder, actually, uh, if one reason a woman like my friend Ashley finally does leave her abusive partner is that maybe in a shelter or in a support group, she discovered someone that would help her with her journey, that, that would be there and encourage her, give her courage when she needed it. I think our testimony as a people is that God does make a way out of no way, that he has a future and that he holds that future, but also that many times we just need each other to help us see it. We need each other to remain hope-shaped when everything around us shouts a cadence and a message of fear. We need a nation to start taking steps into the water. Well, this escape story is really the bedrock of the covenant between the relationship between God and Israel. So I'm just going to close us with four quick points, and then I'll be done. I know we are tempted to imagine that our Egypt, whatever that is, the purveyors of wealth and acquisition and sometimes wisdom, will, we, we are tempted to think that they will keep us happy and safe and they will always disappoint. We're tempted to keep looking back and clinging to our past, whether it's good or bad, and letting it keep this grip on us instead of looking forward and seeing God's work. We are tempted to forget that God is creating us anew all the time. We have done our crossing. We are people who have crossed. We just have to shed our slave mentality and let God do God's thing. And finally, I, I don't know how else to say it, just be a nation. <laughs> we need each other. We need each other for courage to help us face what is sometimes scary and unknown in our future. But also because there is power in numbers 
and we can only hold systems of oppression accountable together. Interestingly, if you go to the genealogy of Jesus, as it's recorded in Matthew in the first chapter, um, it says in verse 4, Aram, the father of Aminadad, and Aminadad, the father of Nashon. Nashon ben Aminadad was the part of Jesus' family tree. Let's pray. God, help us to form some kind of picture or portrait of your redemption by this ancient story. Lord, help us to know that we have been through the waters and you have made us into new creatures. God, give us people who will lead and encourage us to get off the beach when we need to. But most of all, we pray, Lord, that you take us out of Egypt and please take the Egypt out of us. In your name we pray, amen. We are going to receive communion. But before we do, let me read uh, 1 Corinthians 11, when the Apostle Paul was speaking to the church. For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way... After supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is a new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you will proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Um, the way we'll do communion right now is the ushers will dismiss you row by row. You can exit your row and come up here, and one of the servers will serve you just a little individual cup that you can take back to your seat. And they will say to you, Remember the body and blood of Christ. You can respond with amen, or you can not respond, or you can say, I will remember. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we ask you to bless this bread and this cup. Lord, may it be to us a spiritual food and drink and a means of your grace. As we receive it into our bodies, may we receive you once again. Come live inside us and make us new from the inside out. And then send us into the world to be salt and light. And let the world feast upon us and taste and see that you are good, that all may know your goodness. We pray this in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit.